So the men would get kind of scared and say, well, I believe, in, I believe in God, I believe in the Jewish God and everything, and I want to come to synagogue, but I don't want to go all the way, right? And Paul comes and he says, you don't have to go all the way, right? So this is remarkable. So what happens after this masterful sermon that Paul gives? Let's pick up the story in verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. So here, Luke records Paul interacting with three separate groups the days leading up to the next Sabbath. He talks about Gentiles, he talks about Jews, and he talks about devout proselytes. Because of the great stir Paul's sermon caused, and because of whatever interactions Paul and Barnabas have that week with those in the city, we are told that the next Sabbath, that they are met with a gigantic crowd, many multitudes, almost the whole city comes together to hear the word of God. I don't know if this means they had moved to an outdoor venue for this meeting or not, but they very well might have because, of course, this was a very large city. I imagine thousands of people were in attendance for this next sermon that Paul was about to deliver. But before we get to what happens that next Sabbath, Let's unpack a little bit of these people he's dealing with during that week and how he's communicating with them. So I want to deal first with the second two groups, the Jews and the devout proselytes. Now, devout proselytes were people who used to be Gentiles, but went through a full conversion process into the Jewish faith. These were people who very seriously believed in the Scripture and the God of scriptures. I don't think a, an older man would go through a process of circumcision unless they were really convinced, right? <laughs> These were people who were steeped in the law, in the Jewish practices. And, 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 and most of them would have been very steeped in the man-made Jewish traditions as well. So Luke says that of these two groups, Many of them followed Paul and Barnabas. They were excited about the message that Paul had just preached. They likely conversed with them every day over the course of that next week, asking Paul to flesh out the points he gave in his sermon, begging him and Barnabas to, to give them more details about this Jesus, questioning what it meant for the Messiah to have been ascended into heaven and, and what it means for him to be reigning right now at the right hand of God, likely asking questions about the role of sacrifice and other rituals and, and how that would play out now in light of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And so they have all these questions for Paul and, and Barnabas and they're following him. And, and, and what is Paul and Barnabas' response? How are they encouraging them to understand this great event that has happened in Jesus Christ. Well, Luke summarizes their message by saying this, that they persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. This is the first point I want to make this morning, the importance of continuing 
in the grace of God. You know, one thing that was particularly difficult for devout Jewish believers who were coming into the faith was to understand how Jesus Christ had fulfilled Old Covenant law and prophecy, as well as how the gospel ran against some of their man-made traditions and interpretations that had been deeply embedded in their communities that they thought were scripture, but really weren't scripture. So we've seen, for instance, how Peter had a very difficult time understanding why and how the gospel was to go to Gentiles in that it, it wasn't until quite a while after Jesus' ascension in, in Acts chapter 10 that God has to give him three visions, right, uh, uh, of the fact that God had accepted the Gentiles. We'll see a little later in Acts 15 how many Jewish believers in Jerusalem struggled over whether everyone should be circumcised and how exactly the law was to be followed and applied in their lives now that they were followers of Jesus. The law for them had been the foundation of everything. And to think that, that Jesus fundamentally transformed how it uh, would be applied to our life was something that was a great challenge. I think this is why Luke says they were persuading them to continue in the grace of God because Paul could see how their legalistic approach to God and their traditions could hamper their progress in the faith. So his main strategy, his main point over that week he's spending with them is to persuade them, right, not, not to go back under the law, not, not to stick to their Jewish traditions, but to continue in the grace of God, the grace he had just proclaimed in that great sermon on that Sabbath day. Now later we know that Paul is very frustrated with these same people he was persuading, because some of them were not continuing in the grace of God. In fact, his letter to the Galatians, in many ways, is a long rant about how some of them were turning away from the gospel, how they were courting legalistic teachers, how they were falling from the grace of God. It is a letter where he wants to help them think about the law in light of Jesus Christ. And here's just a sample of some things he says in Galatians. Galatians 1 verse 6, he says this. Remember, he's writing to, uh, when he sends this letter, it probably first stops in Antioch because it is the main city in Galatia and then spreads out from there. So these are the people he was talking to and persuading of the grace of God. And this is what he says to them. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. You know, apparently, Paul's week-long persuasion hadn't stuck with many of these new followers of Christ. Word had gotten to Paul that they were courting teachers who were perverting the gospel by making some form of lawful obedience necessary to membership in the people of God, necessary to having a hope of salvation. And Paul is shouting, no, that is no gospel at all. That is a repudiation of the gospel. That is a different gospel. A little later, he goes on to write about his own experience with similar false teachers in Jerusalem. 
Paul had brought one of his own loyal followers there, a, a, a Gentile by the name of Titus. And apparently some of the false teachers who had tried to infiltrate into the church there in Jerusalem were wanting uh, Titus to be circumcised if he was going to participate in the people of God. But none of the apostles or Paul gave heed to any of them. And Paul writes this in Galatians 2 verse 4. And this occurred because a false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission for even an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. You know, if Paul had compromised there, and he made Titus get circumcised so he could make everybody happy and he could participate in the people of God, he, he knew that that compromise would have trickled down to all the other communities and it would have perverted the very message he preached. So he refused to allow these guys to peddle their misunderstanding of circumcision in the law of Moses. For the way they were handling that was, was actually putting people in bondage. A little later, Paul reminds the Galatians about his own preaching in their midst, probably like the first sermon he gave there in Antioch. And he says this in Galatians verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Right? They had seen the gospel. Why? Because Paul painted a beautiful picture for them in his preaching. He talked about how Jesus had hung on a tree for them, how he bore the curse for them, how he fulfilled the law, how he was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. In, in Colossians, Paul speaks about how even the original purpose of circumcision is accomplished in those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, right? It is a circumcision of the heart, and that is the circumcision that matters, right? For circumcision was simply meant to be a sign that they did not trust in the powers of their flesh. That's why God had Abraham circumcised at 99 years old. You know, when you, you cut off the part of your body that's supposed to be the reproductive part, right? And he says, I'm going to show you that you're not the one who's going to bring about Sarah's seed, but I'm going to do it, right? It was all about getting them to not trust in the flesh and rather trust in God. Well, what had the Jews made it? They had made it a thing that they boasted in, a sign of boasting in the flesh, the exact opposite of what God had always intended it to be. You know, the whole week Paul spent in Antioch, Pisidia, he is persuading these believers and devout proselytes to continue, to keep going, to remain, to stand fast in the, in the grace of God. He's showing them that while the law was a holy, just, and good law, it did not have any power to make anybody holy, just, or good. Rather, it was a system that God had put in place to expose sin, to lead us to Christ, and to show us His heart. In fact, in his letter to the Galatians, he uses the illustration of a child custodian for the law. 
He said that the law was like that. It was for a dispensation of childhood where they were under a guardian and, and shown what God is like. But once they had come to maturity, once they had come uh, to the, uh, the, the end goal of the law in Jesus Christ, they no longer needed to be under that child custodian. Certainly they could continue to receive the witness of the law, but they're no longer under it. Its use in their community was now going to be dramatically transformed. So those who sought to pit the law against the liberty of people had experienced in Christ, he, he, Paul, he doesn't have kind words for. He says this in Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. What he's talking about there? He's talking about the law. Verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. You know, to attempt to be justified by the law is to reject the justification work of Jesus Christ. It is to glory in the flesh. Falling from grace here is, has nothing to do with moral failure, although that's a lot of times how we use it in today's lingo, we talk about how some pastor fell from grace, right? Because he had a, a moral, uh, you know, failure. But that's not what Paul is speaking about when he uses this term. He's talking about legalists who turn away from the gospel message that we are justified solely through the death and resurrection of the one Jesus Christ to a message that we are justified before God on the basis of how well we keep the law. Paul ends the letter by saying that those who do attempt to be justified by the law, they're hypocrites. Why? Because nobody has perfectly kept the law. All have fallen short. All have lusted. All have hated. All have coveted. All have fallen short of loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, except one, and his name is Jesus. And so our boast in the Christian life can only ever be in Christ alone. To think we have standing before God on the basis of things like circumcision or our food diet or our festival observances or our perfect moral behavior and heart intentions, that is absolute folly and you will fall quickly. Paul ends the letter like this in Galatians 6.13. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know, it wasn't just important for these Jewish people and devout proselytes to be persuaded to continue in the grace of God. But this is an important message for all Christians, right? It is easy for people to fall into thinking that a relationship with God is based on something other than the forgiveness of sins and gift of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. It is easy for people to begin to judge themselves and compare themselves with others, right? to become pharisaical, to say and think as they're looking at the lives of others, well, at least I'm better than so-and-so, right? 
He doesn't come to as many church services as I do. He doesn't fast and pray like I do. He doesn't dress as nicely as I do. He doesn't know all the Christian lingo and jargon that I do. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm a lot better than that guy. And I think on the scale of God's justice, I'm doing pretty well. Well, you know, that's demonic thinking. Our only boast should be in the cross of Christ. And we should look at others through the eyes of the cross of Christ. That's Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, I no longer view anyone <laughs> through, through natural means. I once, I, I once viewed everyone that way, but I no, I, I no longer do it any, any longer. I view them through the lens of what Christ has done, right? That he has reconciled the world to himself. That their sins were paid for on the cross. That Jesus hung there for their salvation. That they are no better, no worse than me. That they're just in, in need of a Savior in me. And they're just as loved uh, as, as God loves me. Right? So we need to look at people through the eyes of the redemption that Jesus has wrought for them. You know, pers beside persuading the devout religious people to continue in the grace of God, there was another group of people, Luke says, that Paul was conversing with, and, and he calls them the Gentiles. Some of them might have been God-fearers that were actually at the synagogue who were listening in to what Paul had to say, while others were probably just pagan Gentiles. And this is, I just want to read it to you again. It says this in verse 42. The Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Other translations say they kept begging. They kept urging. This was probably something they're doing throughout the week to Paul and Barnabas. Can you preach to us? Why would they say that? What caused these pagans to have such an interest in a Jewish Messiah? I think there's two things that were going on that were leading people to have interest in Jesus. First, there were the Gentile God-fears who were there at the first message Paul gave. And I'm sure these men and women went back to their Gentile family and, and their friends and they said something like, Hey guys, uh, you know I'm into that Jewish stuff, right? Well, um, I know you guys think it's kind of weird, right? And, and I've had some reservations about fully committing myself. But there's these kind of interesting guys from Jerusalem who just showed up. And they say this guy who died on a Roman cross actually rose from the, from the dead and that he ascended into heaven. And, and, and I felt th this thing in, in, in the work of, uh, of God in my midst and, and, and on my heart. And, and, and I think you guys should come and hear, hear, hear what these guys have to say, right? I think there was probably something like that. And, and they're probably saying, yeah. And, and what's really cool is that, is that he said, you know, at the end uh, that we're not justified by following the law of Moses. And, and so he, he was saying, you know, we don't need to be circumcised and, and we don't need to do these things. And, and, and that he's the Messiah, not just for the Jews, but he, he's the Messiah for all people. So I think you guys should come and hear what these guys have to say, right? But I don't think those Gentile God-fears who were there would have been enough to bring almost the whole city of Antioch there. There was probably something else going on with the Gentiles. And um, <laughs> we're given a hint of what it might have been when Barnabas and Paul report what happened on their missionary journey to the uh, apostolic leaders in Jerusalem at the Jerusalem Council. 
And this is what they tell the leaders there in Acts 15, verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what? How many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among whom? Among the Gentiles. What is this a report of? It's a report of their first missionary journey that was only in Cyprus and in Galatia. Now, in the next chapter, in Acts 14, we're told of one great miracle that Paul works in one of the next three cities in Galatia, in Iconium. But that's the only miracle that's reported on this journey. But what does it say? Paul and Barnabas says that there were many miracles and wonders that were done on this trip. I imagine this week in between his first message and his second message that Paul and Barnabas, as they're conversing with people, as they're going through the city, many mighty miracles and wonders are happening through their hands. And this, of course, is something that was a cause for interest, right? These people had never seen anything like that before. This is the second point I want to make is this. Called to be mighty in word and deed. Called to be mighty in word and deed. Now, you know, Paul and Barnabas don't just talk about the many mighty, mighty miracles in Galatia before the Jerusalem council. Paul also makes mention of it in his letter that he wrote to the Galatians. Look what he says in Galatians 3 verse 5. He says, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, he knows that there's miracles being worked among them. Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What's, of course, the answer? By the hearing of faith. And um, we'll look at next week in Acts 14, how one man is specifically told to be healed, to rise on his feet and walk again solely because Paul saw that he had faith to be healed. There was a healing of, of faith, a working of, uh, of a miracle. You know, miracles are an important part of evangelism. They let skeptics know that the living Christ is presently at work in his church, right? When Jesus commissioned his disciples right before he ascended into heaven, and he said, wait in Jerusalem, why? Until you are clothed with power from on high, right? Wait, wait in Jerusalem and, and, until, um, you know, uh, you receive power from on high until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you can be my witness in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So when miracles are manifested, what happens is that multitudes are intrigued. They want to see what is going on. They want to see, you know, uh, they, they've never seen something like that before. You know, we need to be open to God doing miracles and wonders through our own lives. One way you start doing that is just start believing in the power of prayer. Just start believing what Jesus said when he said, my sheep, hear my voice. Just start believing what Jesus said when he said, these signs shall follow those who believe. They will lay hands on the sick and they will be healed. You know, I think one of the most, or the most, I know, the most viewed service that we've ever had here at Mission City Church, you know what it was? 
it was a testimony about a miracle. It was the testimony about Neff. Where's Neff? You know, Neff, there he is back there, right? <laughs> Neff, they said you were going to die, right? You should be dead three, four years ago, right? They said you're going to die unless you amputate your leg. It's in 27 pieces. You're toast. Your pain level's a 9 or a 10. And what happens? God miraculously heals Neff's legs. He gives him a new leg, right? He gives him his blood one drop at a time. And now Neff was just showing me yesterday how he can kick his right leg up, which is the new miraculous leg, way higher than he can kick his left leg up, right? This is four years later. Why? Is there any natural explanation for how that happened? No, there is zero. And we went through in detail how there's zero natural explanation for what happened in Neftali. The only explanation was the power of God, the miraculous power of God at work in his life. So when people saw that on the Internet, they started sharing it. And it was getting a couple thousand views or something like that. And, and people loved it. Why? People who weren't even Christians. Because they knew that what had happened was an undeniable miracle of God. And when people see that in their midst, what happens is they become interested in the living Christ. Amen? So we need to be people who understand that just as Jesus was mighty in word and deed, just as Stephen was mighty in word and deed, just as Paul was mighty in word and deed, so you and I are called to be mighty in word and deed because we have been endowed with power from on high. So what happens next? What happens after... Paul's persuading the Jews and proselytes after he's working miracles among the Gentiles. This is what happens that next Saturday then. Acts 13, 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. So what happens is, the Jewish leaders in this large city, they witnessed the largest crowd they had ever seen, by far, for a Sabbath service, right? In fact, Luke says there were multitudes in the plural. And, and the first thought of the Jews, you know, which is probably largely referring to the Jewish leaders, is, um, is envy, right? It's envy. You know, everyone's coming to church, and, and the leaders and some of the devout attendees, they're jealous. Isn't that sad? Yet we're told that these people were hungry. They came to hear the word of God. These were genuine people who were genuinely seeking what was happening in their midst. Yes, maybe they were idolaters. Yes, maybe they had all sort of sinful lifestyles and didn't dress or act a way you thought was appropriate. But that shouldn't have mattered to anybody. These people were coming to a synagogue service to hear God's word. They were coming to learn about God's plan through the Jewish people that had culminated in the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You know, it's interesting. I think even today, Christians can become envious over the success of other Christians who don't do things the exact same way that they do, right? You know, I, I'm not saying... Crowds always means that God is at work in a group, but sometimes it does certainly mean that. And we should rejoice that God is using any people group and a vast variety of styles to draw multitudes in his kingdom, right? 
Jesus said, um, you know, he who is uh, for us is not against us, right? We need to root out any envy and rejoice in the growth of the kingdom. So what is Paul's response to these envious Jews? It's very direct, right? We've seen Paul be very direct in dealing with the sorcerer on Cyprus. He was very direct at the end of his sermon the prior Saturday when he says, beware, don't, don't let happen to you what happened to the people at the time of Habakkuk, right? Where they saw the work of God but didn't do anything about it. So he's very direct to them, and he says this in, in verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. He's mad because these people are interrupting him, and they're contradicting the message of the gospel that he's preaching, right? And, and, they're, and they're trying to blind the eyes of all these Gentiles coming to faith. So he grows bold in the Holy Spirit, and he says, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Now, everywhere Paul went, he's always preaching to the Jew first. That's the principle he gives in, in Romans 1.16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The message of salvation is a message that springs out of God's prior work among the Jewish people. A proper understanding of the gospel only fully makes sense in light of their history. The Jews who would receive their Messiah would be absolutely crucial to the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. But once the Jewish synagogues turned against Paul, he would turn his attention fully to the Gentiles in those areas. He had done his due diligence. You know, we are responsible for sharing the message of salvation. We are responsible for sharing the good news about Jesus. But we are not responsible for how people respond to that message. Rather, those who reject that message bear their own guilt. Paul says that they judge themselves unworthy of everlasting life. In Acts chapter 7, we saw how the Jewish Sanhedrin that Stephen is preaching to we're told that they resisted the Holy Spirit. Luke talks about how uh, many Jewish leaders during the time of John the Baptist's ministry, they rejected the will of God for themselves by not being baptized. You know, the responsibility for lack of salvation does not primarily rest on the messenger. It does not rest on God. It does not rest on the Holy Spirit. But rather, Luke here records, Paul says, that it rests on those who reject the message and resist the Holy Spirit. You know, God will not force people to believe. He might do many mighty powerful things and he might bring people to their knees and knock them off high horses like he did Paul himself, but he never forces anybody to believe. He accepts people's rejection even when he is weeping over it, like Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. You know, God does not desire anyone to perish, but at the same time, he will not force anybody to receive the grace that is offered them. He desires all to have everlasting life, but he will not make us robots who will just do his command. Paul then quotes the prophet Isaiah. 
he says this, Acts 13, 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. <laughs> He's saying God has commanded us to be a light to the Gentiles. What is he quoting? He's quoting from one of the servant songs of Isaiah, which is speaking about Jesus, the Messiah. Let me read it to you, Isaiah 49, 6. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you to be a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is the last point I want to make. Boldly be the body of Christ. Now that passage, Isaiah 49, it's speaking about Jesus, right? And there it is prophesied that he would not only restore Israel, but that he would also bring salvation to the ends of the earth and would be a light to all of the Gentiles. Paul understood this verse as a command that he too, he says, the Lord has commanded us to be a light to the Gentiles. Why? How could he understand that it's a command to him to be a light to the Gentiles? Because Paul had a revelation that he was the body of Christ. When Jesus knocked him off his high horse on his way to Damascus, what does he say to him? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you are persecuting Christians, when you are throwing them in prison, when you are casting your vote to have them sentenced to death, you are actually persecuting me. So Paul sees this prophecy about the servant Jesus being allied unto the Gentiles, and he understands that the way the servant is allied unto the Gentiles is through his body on the earth, which was Paul, Barnabas, and all the other believers. So he knew he was commanded to not just preach to the Jews, but he was commanded to be a light to the Gentiles because Christ, the light of the world, lived in him, and so now he too was a light for the world. And he was to be a city that was set on a hill that would not be hidden. He was to let his light shine before men, that they might see his good works and glorify the Father in heaven. He was going to be a light to the Gentiles. Verse 48. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all that region. The word of the Lord spread through all that region. It went from the great metropolis of Antioch there to all the outlying villages in Galatia. The God-fearers and Gentiles were ecstatic about how this Jesus was uh, the message uh, of everlasting life. And so, um, you know, it's interesting here in, in verse 48, in, embedded in this verse, is one of the most commented phrases in the entire book of Acts. A lot of people get stuck in endless debates about this. I just want to touch on it real briefly. What does Luke mean when he says, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed? Luke is not talking about God choosing certain people for eternal life and damning others here. If he wanted to say that, he could have used two words he had used earlier in Acts to speak about God's eternal predestination. Words that were reserved for God predestinating the work of Jesus on the cross. Rather, Paul uses a word that means something more like set in order. It seems that their appointment or their being set in order did not happen in eternity past. But after the gospel was proclaimed and the Spirit worked in their hearts, 
You know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And, and as they received, instead of rejecting that work, they entered into the joys of eternal life. They were set in order uh, for eternal life, and they believed because of the work of the Spirit, the work of the gospel in their midst, not because God had just eternally foreordained that they should go to heaven and the other ones should go to hell. In fact, a lot of those other people who did reject the message there probably were set in order at a later date and did believe as well. You know, if Luke was trying to co communicate some form of eternal predestination, it certainly doesn't make sense in this context. For right before this, he said, they judge themselves unworthy of eternal life, right? The responsibility is placed squarely on them and instead of some sort of eternal decree, right? So what happens, you know, after this explosive growth of the church among the Gentiles in the city and the surrounding area, well... The Jewish leaders get so mad at Paul and Barnabas. They get so mad at all the Gentiles rejoicing that, that they stir up a lot of the powerful women and the powerful men in the city, and they deport them. Acts 13, verse 50. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. They said, okay, we've done our work. Now we're just going to follow what Jesus told us to do. You know, Jesus said when you go, when he sent out his disciples, this is what he said, shake, shake your feet. Let's actually read it. Mark 6, 11. Jesus said, whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah is used throughout the scripture as the preeminent city uh, of God's judgment. In fact, I, I was listening to a podcast this last week. It just happened to be on the archaeological excavations of Sodom in Israel today. A guy's been working at the site of Sodom for the last 17 years. They've excavated it, and it's like undeniable that it is the city of, of, of Sodom. In fact, uh, he says that there are more, uh, you know, indications that it's the city of Sodom, that we can, know, we can know for certain that this is the city of Sodom, even more than we can know that the Jerusalem of today was the Jerusalem of Jesus' time. That's how certain the city of Sodom is that they've discovered. And one thing they've discovered over the city of Sodom is like, uh, I think it's something like a meter and a half of this, uh, you know, sulfur uh, dust and ash that was caused by a heavenly uh, meteoric explosion of fire and ash that, that burned the city in an instant, right? And, and, and what does is, what is, uh, uh, Jesus say? It would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that, than for that city. You know, the worst thing you can do is not the sins that Sodom and Gomorrah were doing. The worst thing you could possibly do is reject the message of Jesus Christ to judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life. That's the worst thing you could possibly do. Look what it goes on to say in verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You know that opposition should never ever cause our level of joy to decrease. In fact, the New Testament states over and over again that when we experience opposition for the sake of the gospel, 
our joy level, instead of going down, it should actually go up. And that should encourage us, right? When we are rejected for being a believer, for following the ways of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit fills us with a sense of joy, with peace, with well-being. We never, ever need to be discouraged. And in fact, this is something Jesus reiterates quite often. He says it in his Sermon on the Mount. He says it in his Sermon on the Plain. I want to read the Sermon on the Plain to you, Luke 6, verse 22. Jesus says, Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. That's exactly what happened to Paul and Barnabas, right? What are they supposed to do? Verse 23. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Right? We have received joy inexpressible and full of glory. We never need to be discouraged. Right? We never need to be discouraged in our witness when someone is uh, re rejecting that witness. Rather, we need to th thank uh, the Lord that He is at work. And um, we just need to continue. What do we do? We pick up and we go to the next person. We go to the next city. And, uh, you know, God will continue to be at work. Amen. We're going to take communion. Now, anyone here not received a communion element, go ahead and lift up your hand. I want to make sure to get that into your hand. So if you're here this morning and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you can partake of this meal uh, with us. You know, it's so encouraging to believe uh, that, you know, Paul and Barnabas, their witness, their message, their miracles, everything that they did, right, was not done in their own strength. It was done how? In the strength of Jesus Christ. In fact, what Paul writes to, Galatia, to the Galatians in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loves me and who gave himself for me. So this is what we do every time we take communion. We're reminded of the Son of God who loves us eternally and of the Son of God who gave himself for us and who the Son of God who lives inside of us, that we are one with him. Amen? So this is what... We're told in 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your broken body 